Welcome to No Filter, I'm your host Anna Kasparian and today we're doing things a little differently. Instead of hosting this show solo like I normally do, I've brought on a guest to help me navigate through some of the more problematic components of the digital world. We're going to take a deep dive into the inequities that exist within the tech world and how inherent biases make their way into algorithms and artificial intelligence. Later in the show, we'll hopefully do a better job dissecting online hate better than the House Judiciary Committee did last week, and we'll end the show on a more optimistic note by discussing solutions. I'm not enough of an expert to do this all on my own, so who's here to discuss these topics with me? Ramesh Srinivasan is a professor of information studies and design media arts at UCLA. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ramesh. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Anna. So uh, over the weekend, I was watching some of your lectures and they're incredible. They're available on YouTube and I highly recommend everyone check it out because it'll help um, you know, kind of give you a good foundation for what we're gonna discuss today. Um, but I wanna start off with the issue of inherent biases because that of course exists in society. We all have inherent biases that might be subconscious. We might be uh, you know, carrying out certain activities that make their way into the coding for some of the tech that we're seeing today. And I want you to elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one thing we know for sure is not only that our world is biased, but that implicit bias, right? Like that mm -hmm. all of us carry around in our heads some form of implicit bias. And that's partly because we were raised a certain way or we come from certain families or have mm -hmm. certain backgrounds, right? And we know there's enough science out there and it's really been validated that shows that at the minimum, all human beings carry with them some ideas of bias in their minds and they may not even consciously know that. But here's the issue, right? So mm -hmm. when we have power, to create something, right? Like I write a story, I write, a, you know, like an, a journalistic article. But also, when I create technology, I always create that technology based on who I am, and who I am might not be completely apparent to you. Might not even be completely apparent in a full way to my to my wife or my partner Shama. But it's actually something that I reveal through what I create. So that's why when we create technology, which almost everyone thinks of as neutral or efficient or innovative or cutting edge, right? Actually, what I'm doing is embedding my biases into the code itself. And the problem there is as those biases become part of the technologies that are increasingly taking over everything and anything in our world, those biases become normalized and everybody treats them as neutral and then we see these incredible problems emerge as our biases as elite engineers end up creating the technologies that shape everything and anything really. It's so fascinating because I see these biases enter into or translate into coding in multiple ways. So on one hand, you have the coders themselves who might have you know, some of these biases that they're completely unaware of. Yeah. And then at the same time, there is the issue of how some intelligence is gathered. That intelligence is gathered through the way we behave publicly, right? And, and you, you spoke about that in one of your lectures. Can you talk yeah. about that a little more yeah. here? Yeah, so the way we actually learn, uh, these technologies learn from us is partly like we create the technologies and those we, you know, we write software, for example, to learn 
from phenomena that the software might observe, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a man, I might be training my system to look at activities that I think of as normal activities as a man. So that's that implicit bias showing up there again, right? And what's really prominent here is that a lot of engineers and developers think that what we're building when we're building technology is just engineering, right? It's just neutral, it's just natural, it's just efficient. Um, but moreover, what's really, really powerful is the technologies increasingly are learning from the world. Mm -hmm. But what is that world they're learning from? Well, it's a world that's full of biases, right? So when I'm an engineer and I'm trying to create a technology that learns from something like, say, you know, the insurance the insurance claims or policing claims mm -hmm. or uh, the world and crime as it is, it's actually going to learn from the biases of that world. So if I feed data to those systems that learn from that data and that data is already biased and I'm biased, Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen, right? right? And we see that in Silicon Valley with executives and investors and even engineers themselves, dominantly male, right? There are stereotypes that are rampant that a lot of people actually believe that men are better at science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And now we're creating automated systems that actually replicate those biases themselves. So these executives, these investors who have such power over our future and actually are present, as I'm going to share with you today, are actually in many cases representing the top percent of our world. White, male, elite educated, you know, top economic class gazillionaires, mm -hmm. right? And so the problem is, is those people, even if they have good intentions, who knows, um, are actually going to create biases throughout our world and make our world even more unequal. And we're already seeing how some of those biases in tech have transferred into certain software or certain programs that continue to exacerbate these biases. So I wanna bring up a few examples and then I want you to fill in the blanks because sure. I didn't even know these technologies existed and they're deeply problematic. So for instance, in St. Petersburg, Russia, there was something known as FaceApp. Right. You talked about it in your lecture. And they actually ended up apologizing for a feature in that app. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that was, do you remember like hot or not? Like back course, in the day, yeah. this was like something that Mark Zuckerberg was actually playing with back in the day. It was this idea, you know, sort of seemingly innocent, but actually very pernicious and harmful. Uh, yeah, it's an application that was developed in Russia mm -hmm. where it would go around the internet and takes people, take people's faces and make their faces look more beautiful, right? right? But we know beauty is often based on bias, and we know that beauty in many cases in the world represents uh, racist histories, right, mm -hmm. that, are, that have come home to roost in many cases. And so what it actually ended up doing was taking President Obama's face and making it look not just more white, but also younger, right? So it, in, in so doing, the technology that we all thought would be just sort of neutral and efficient and whatever actually turned out to be ageist and also um, possibly racist. Super interesting. And then there was one other, uh, one other development that I want you to just quickly talk sure. about, and that's Compass by North Point. And I think that oh, yeah. this is even more problematic because of yeah. the biases that it relies on in order to sentence certain individuals. Yeah, so what this is a system that was being deployed in Florida and to some extent also here in California in Napa County. And it's a system that is sort of like minority report. It was looking at um, 
the files of different people who have been apprehended for various types of criminal activity, simple stuff even like shoplifting, and it would like analyze the arrest file and it would analyze data about that individual and make scores kind of come out with like clean, neutral looking, neat looking scores um, that actually would make predictions on the likelihood of committing a future crime. Remember right. that future yes. crimes yes. institute in Minority Report. But what we saw happening is that black and brown people who had um, perhaps only misdemeanor arrests were being scored with a higher likelihood of creating a future crime than white people who had possibly felony convictions in their records. Right. Um, so you have you have the. Uh, White defendants, or at this point, they've been convicted, they're awaiting sentencing. And even if their crimes were more severe than the black individuals who were convicted for or found guilty of a simple misdemeanor, the technology, because of the biases that had translated into the coding, would say that the black defendants are two times more likely to commit the Precisely. crime again. Right. And a judge in Napa County actually said someone who is white could have molested a child for every day and come out by the scoring system as low risk, not high risk. It's terrifying. Um, and yeah. so those scores are being used to influence judging decisions on courtroom sentencing. And it's happening right now. That's right, it's happening right now. And the thing is these systems are being embedded in institutions, so we don't even know when we're engaging with those systems as the public. So that's the part that's particularly worrisome. We just think we're like in a courtroom, mm -hmm. but what's the courtroom using? It's using biased technology. And so I actually get in arguments sometimes with people about this because they say, hey, that's better than humans that are biased. But that's the wrong question to ask. The question that we should be asking and answering is what kind of technologies do we want that take people who are vulnerable and marginalized and truly fight for justice and equity for those people. Yes. We have to build the digital world in that way. So I promise you that later on in the show, we're gonna talk about possible solutions for some of these issues. But after the break, we're actually gonna talk a little bit about the mobilization of hate on online platforms. We'll get into that and later again, we will talk about solutions, so come right back. Welcome back to No Filter. We're having a conversation about some of the issues that have developed as our world becomes more digitized. While inequalities in society are currently exacerbated by how things are structured in the tech world, online platforms are also unwittingly mobilizing and amplifying communities like incels or white supremacists. My guest, Professor Siri Nivasan, argues that when private corporate interests masquerade as journalistic organizations, that causes a bait and switch. And from what many of us have noticed is that the spread of fake or extreme partisan news stokes some of these racial tensions. In this segment, I wanna go back to a House Judiciary Committee hearing from last week, which was meant to find solutions to online hate. It appears that the hearing wasn't so fruitful though. The aftermath has consisted of the typical partisan divide that's become all too familiar. In fact, the hateful comments on the stream for the hearing were so bad that YouTube 
released a statement on Twitter that read, quote, due to the presence of hateful comments, we disabled comments on the live stream of today's House Judiciary Committee hearing. I thought it would be enlightening to show clips of that hearing and have an actual expert weigh in. Ramesh is a professor of information studies and design media at UCLA. And he has a book coming out in October titled Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequalities and Shaping the Technology of Tomorrow. Ramesh, thanks again for being here. Oh, I love your work, Anna. So thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. So uh, I want to uh, start off by showing you a clip of Candace Owens. Of course, this is what got the most attention. Right. But <laughs> it's it's a perfect example of how this hearing was uh, co-opted by partisan interests. Take a look. My grandfather grew up on a sharecropping farm in the segregated South. He grew up in an America where words like racism and white nationalism held real meaning under the Democrat Party's Jim Crow laws. My grandfather's first job was given to him at the age of five years old, and his job was to lay tobacco out to dry in an attic in the South. My grandfather has picked cotton, and he has also had experiences with a Democrat terrorist organization of that time, the Ku Klux Klan. They would regularly visit his home and they would shoot bullets into it. They had an issue with his father, my great-grandfather. During my formative years, I had the privilege of growing up in my grandfather's home. It's going to shock the committee, but not once, not in a single breath of a conversation did my grandfather tell me that I could not do something because of my skin color. Not once did my grandfather hold a gripe against the white man. I was simply never taught to view myself as a victim because of my heritage. So while I think it's important to hear the story that, you know, of her grandfather and what he went through, there was a lot of partisan commentary in there. And so what did you make of her appearance in this hearing and whether or not it had any real impact on solutions or outcomes? I mean, I didn't find it particularly helpful, to be honest. It mm -hmm. sounds like it's more like kind of gaslighting partisanship, to be honest. I mean, I think if we want to get at the root of what is fueling online hate, we have to understand how responsible uh, the technology platforms are that determine what is or is not visible, right? So we see numerous examples throughout recent history of how conspiracy theories, you know, Alex Jones type garbage percolate to the top of Google News, of Facebook feeds, and so on, right? The most trafficked digital news source in the three months before the 2016 election was not, sadly, the Young Turks, was not CNN. Mm -hmm. It was Breitbart News, right? It's amazing. So right. why is that? That's the question. Why is that? And it's because these technologies are designed to grab our attention. So gaslighting sensationalist content is what swoops up to the top. And the great thing about the internet is anyone can post almost anything, but what's really problematic about the internet is these corporate self-serving private technology platforms which masquerade as journalism are putting to the top content that is incredibly irresponsible and not factual. Absolutely, and and I see it happening all the time where there's this pressure as, as an organization that creates online content, there's this pressure to sensationalize. And I mean, I feel like it started off with, oh, let's do the bait titles, clickbait titles. Yeah. And then it translates into other really disgusting behavior, right? So yeah. focus on the takedown videos where you're going after someone <laughs> on the other side. That's really the type of content that seems to get rewarded on these platforms. Yeah. And it certainly is an issue. And you know, luckily here, we understand that it's way more important to be honest with our audience than, you know, 
create a, a, a sensationalist uh, program. But I've seen a lot of people game that algorithm to their advantage. Yeah. So uh, I wanna show you one more video, and this uh, features a representative from YouTube. Her name is Alexandria Walden, she was part of the hearing as well. And uh, she works in public policy and government relations at Google. And so she tries to explain that YouTube has made some changes, but I wanna figure out whether or not you think those changes are enough. Take a look. Most recently, we have made uh, updates to our recommendation algorithm so that content that's on the borderline is not pushed out through our recommendation system. So content that violates our guidelines, our hate speech guidelines, which prohibit anything that promotes and incites violence against uh, individuals or groups, uh, or promotes hatred against individuals or groups based on their characteristics, including race, gender, ethnicity, uh, religion. All of that content is a violative of our community guidelines. But content that's on the border is content that we no longer include in our recommendation algorithm, and it can also be demonetized and uh, comments are disabled, et cetera. So Ramesh, is this enough? <laughs> Not even close. What's very common with the tech companies is to say, hey, just trust us, we will take on you know, the steps that are needed. I mean, Zuckerberg, when he was up in front of the Senate and the House said, we'll just create better AI, you know, just trust us. But actually what's happening, and I really, there are very nice people who work for Google, she seems lovely. But the thing is, they are not getting to the real crux of the issue, which is they need to take responsibility for telling us why we see what we see mm -hmm. and what they know about us and how what they know about us influences what we see. Because otherwise we know the impact of this is dopamine in our brains going crazy, which really like can create a lot of antagonistic and insightful behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, when we come back from the break, we are going to look into some solutions to all of this yeah. and, and what you think would actually work in solving some of these issues. So come right back. Uh, we will get into those uh, topics when we return. Welcome back, we're here with Ramesh Srinivasan, who is a professor in information studies at UCLA. We've been talking about some of the issues that we've been facing in the digitized world. And I promised you guys solutions, Ramesh has some suggestions. Yeah. Let's get to it. Okay, well, Anna, more than anything, and I've been arguing for this in my new book called Beyond the Valley. Uh, which will be coming out in October, which I'd love to talk to you all more about, um, is we need something which is what I'm calling as a data bill of rights. So what does that mean? Well, okay, it's one thing to think about regulating the tech companies, but actually this, this issue that we've been discussing today is not just about the tech companies, it's about data that is being grabbed from us at all times. Anytime we use a card that has any sort of digital footprint, a digital transaction like our credit card mm -hmm. or a card at Rite Aid or whatever, or our phones with the GPS, or obviously when we go onto social media platforms, data is being grabbed from us. And we need to understand what's being collected about us at what times, for what purposes, and who has access to that data. And we also need to understand what types of data are being accessed for how long a period of time. Because if I gather data about someone, say when they're 18 years old, and it was available to a potential employer or a life insurance policy when they're 40 years old, is that really fair? Mm. Because that's actually massive surveillance on a scale we've never had before that is happening here. So I think that's the first thing. And government can intervene in creating greater transparency 
around these issues. To some extent, this is being applied in the European Union with the um, protection rights, the GDPR. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think what's really important is we need to understand we're going through a massive wave of economic transformation in relation to technology. Um, there are some estimates that over 30% of current jobs are going to be automated, replaced by machines. 30%? There are some estimates that wow. say that. Uh -huh. And what we're not doing is identifying the dignified, secure paying, you know, benefits supportive jobs of the future. We're just thinking about this as work and labor as costs that are that are just dispensable. I mean, we, not you and I, but right. those running this whole world, right? And so this is really, really troubling um, unless we deal with this right now. We need to identify jobs that work with changes in technology. Automation has happened before, like forklifts mm -hmm. are an example of automation. And we need to ensure that there's economic security for everybody. So one of the big hot topics is the so-called universal basic income, pay everybody some money through these transformations. But for me, that's kind of a lipstick on a pig solution. Mm -hmm. It just says, hey, this problem is massive economic inequality in this digital transformation. Let's just give everybody some money so they can continue to be consumers of Amazon, right? right? It's very self-serving. and. A a bunch of candidates are running on this platform, including, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Yang has that as part of his yeah, platform. Yeah. You know, I've never heard anyone critique it from that perspective, and it's fascinating. A system that's extractive, mm -hmm. that's pulling money through this 24-7 surveillance, like surveillance capitalist system, pulling money out of, pulling data out of people to make them more prone to whatever it is these companies want is not a system that is resolved simply by paying everybody 100 bucks a month. It's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So what we need, there are estimates showing that Uber workers, gig economy workers, which is on its way to automation, right? Workers are, in, are, are considered dispensable. Costs are, are to be lowered. Valuation is to increase. So what we need need to do is guarantee economic security to all these people by finding them secure work. They should be having access to things like portable benefits, right? Like if I drive for Uber 10 hours, work 20 hours for TaskRabbit, those benefits should all be shared by those different employers. We need new ways of collectively bargaining in the digital economy through models like guilds. And there are actually a lot of examples we can look at right now. We can also look at this idea of cooperatives. What if workers involved in these data and tech companies had greater equity in these businesses as well? This None of this is happening right now. If you look at companies like Airbnb or Amazon, they own almost nothing. They employ almost nobody. If you go into an Amazon fulfillment center, it's full of robots. What happened to the people? And the people that are there are being monitored yeah. with wristbands. It's inhumane. This is what Marx was writing about mm -hmm. many years ago. This is what Taylorism was. So we need to get back to dignity and humanity as a society. Otherwise, this tech world is gonna make things even worse and more unequal, which is not what we wanted with the internet. You're, you're absolutely right. And I feel like this is an issue that everyone can agree to. Both yeah. Democrats, Republicans, independents, regardless of where you stand uh, ideologically, this is something that all of us are feeling. You know, some of the economic downsides of these advancements. So how do we get to a point where our lawmakers actually listen to us, right? Yeah. Because right now, I would argue that our lawmakers are doing a great job in making it seem as though we all disagree on this issue. But I don't think there really is much disagreement. No, there are many more agreements than there are disagreements. Actually, mm -hmm. if you just look at, at, at American people, which we see across the board, right, with Medicare for yes. All or the Green New Deal, things that you all like bravely and courageously cover on this network. But it's also true with this tech transformation world. So what we need to do 
is pressure them to get out of corporate pockets and to really ensure that these lawmakers are accountable to all of us. And there are some ways of doing that, right? Like while the internet has been extractive, it also brings working class people together, like we see with the Bernie campaign, right? Yes. And yes. so this is all, all of this is possible. And I just want to make this last point, which is the internet is incredible, it's efficient, it's here to stay, it's infusing itself into everything. But it was largely funded through government investment, yes. through public investment. Yes. But who is reaping the returns of that internet? It's Private corporate power. So that has to be balanced. And that's what I'm arguing for in Beyond the Valley. Ramesh, thank you so much for joining us. Such a great conversation. I, I could sit here and talk with you about this for hours, uh, but unfortunately, we had such limited time. I hope you'll come back. <laughs> you anytime. We will talk about it more. Yeah, thank for you. Sure. Thank, thank you for thank having you. me, Anna. My pleasure, my pleasure. And thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're gonna switch up the format a little bit and have more guests on for the program. So next week we will do the same thing. We will have a different conversation, different guests, and I hope you enjoyed it. Check us out next week for another episode of No Filter.